It's always just a little bit of a lag with OBS where you press the button and you think everything's okay and then it appears and it is okay. Hopefully it is all okay. Right, I'm live. Another weekly update. I think I did last week in the morning as well. And uh, and yeah, get a Dr. Blue. I see people joining in now, which is which is good. It's always nice to actually see someone arrive and know that the thing is actually working. So doing a, just doing a few in my morning rather than my afternoon. Normally for first time listeners, I would swap this around and I'd do like something in the morning now and then like next week I'd do in the afternoon and then you sort of get different time zones and so on. But uh, this is actually uh, just due to my schedule last week. No, last week I did the afternoon, didn't I? Oh, no, I lose track. I came back from mountain biking. Today I've got friends visiting uh, and I plan on being, being, <laughs> drinking beer and doing other things at the time that I would normally do this. So it is a morning thing. So let me, uh, let me jump straight into it before I, I go and uh, mountain bike my way over to another social event involving coffee at this time of day. First things first is sponsors. Brand new sponsor this week. It's been a while since I've had a brand new sponsor. Brand new sponsor is CrowdSec, the open source massively multiplayer firewall, which is actually a pretty epic title. So big, uh, big thanks to CrowdSec. Respond to attacks and share signals across the community. Download it for free. Uh, now, I did actually have a meeting with these guys just recently, and they walked me through the product, and it, it does look pretty slick. Uh, I quite like the way they've presented this site too. Outnumbering hackers altogether. CrowdSec is an open source collaborative EDR. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community. And uh, I think it's this, this sort of old analogy of like together we are stronger than than uh, as we are as individuals. So go and check out CrowdSec. Uh, that price again is free and open source. So give them a go. Big thanks to those folks for sponsoring my blog this week for the first time for CrowdSec. Okay, other things that are happening now. Uh, perfect timing. Burton's just said, how's your camera? So, last week, I think I'm, oh, maybe it was last week, uh, recently, I made the comment that sometimes I would go all Papa Smurf, <laughs> by which I mean I would suddenly turn very blue. Now, I do have a very bespoke lighting setup here uh, for first-time watchers. I've got a little stream deck here. I, I press a button and all the lights all, ooh, look at that. I'll go off and I'll go all dark. And then I press another button again, and they'll come back on. Part of my home automation system, I'm going to talk about home automation in just a moment. But what I'd find is even without touching any lights, sometimes I would move around and I'd look somewhere different and maybe the camera would pick up a bit more color or something and it would change the hue of the picture such that I looked a little bit blue, hence the Papa Smurf comment. Now, as soon as I tweeted this, a whole bunch of people came back and said, look, it's all your auto white balance. So I have uh, found, not just found the auto white balance setting on the camera, but programmed one of the uh, customizable buttons on my Sony A6400 camera, such that I've got a little button on the front that I can hit to do uh, auto white balance lock. And I can easily hit that again, and I'll take that off. I was almost about to do it, and then I was like, no, let's not tempt fate, it's working. <laughs> so long as it stays working throughout the whole video, I'll be very, very happy, but I think it will. My DAC, I have had less success with. Uh, I've had Universal Audio send back some suggestions which were varying levels of bad, if, I, if I'm honest. I've, they were reasonable in their responses, but I just feel a little bit like it was the kind of have you turned it off and turned it back on again kind of responses. 
But now that I'm broadcasting through OBS and I'm actually starting to get to grips a little bit more with OBS, which for people who've been using it before, you've all been telling me, look, OBS is awesome, use it. Uh, but I actually have to use it for some recordings coming up for one of the, the talks I'm doing. So um, that is actually solving my problem because it was really just the camera straight into the browser. Now, mind you, as soon as someone wants to have like a Google Teams meeting, I'm going to have a problem <laughs> because it's, did I say Google Teams? Ah, Google, whatever it is. You know the one online, Google Hangouts. Is it Hangouts or that go? I lose. There's so many different meeting things now. Every time I start a meeting that's in my calendar somewhere, it's like, okay, it's Blue Jeans. Is it WebEx? Is it whatever? Anywho, the point is, is that when it goes into the browser, that's when I have problems. All right, moving on. Uh... I did put a little bit of a schedule in my tweet, but there are other things I want to cover as well. And one of the things I just thought about was around breaches. Now, there's a lot of them. I published one this week. And the one I published this week was, uh, let me just read you the tweet. So this one was about uh, Phone House Espana. So Phone House in Spain. Ransomware attack, let's say attack, attack, <laughs> leading to 5.2 million email addresses being published to a dark website. I always want to say dark web website, but it sounded very redundant and I ran out of characters. Data included names, genders, dates of birth, phone numbers, and physical addresses. 58% were already in Have I Been Pwned? So there's a Tor hidden service set up, a bunch of data dumped there, uh, allegedly from a ransomware attack, allegedly a subset of a larger set of data, which would also be dumped if some amount of bitcoins were not forthcoming. So this may be a partial uh, breach that's in Have I Been Pwned at the moment. We might see more in the future. We have to wait and see. So that was up there. I've just been sent so much stuff lately as well, and, and so much stuff that is in the millions or tens of millions of records. And I, I'm, I've, I've verified a couple of them, which are legitimate. In fact, I tried to do disclosure to one of them. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe we should just live this. Let's live stream this tweet because I didn't get a reply from this company. So here's the, uh, here's the way this normally works. I get given some data and I verify it. Now, how do I verify it? I will take email addresses from the, uh, from the alleged at this stage breach, from the alleged breach, and I will go through and I will go to, say, the login feature, and then I'll find the forgot password feature. And I'll put, say, a mailinator address into the forgot password feature. And I will say, uh, reset the password. Now, of course, we're resetting the password. It doesn't actually reset the password. It sends a mail. Now, if the website comes back and says, yes, we've sent you a mail versus, hey, that email address doesn't exist, then we've got an enumeration vector, which is confirming the existence of email addresses in the alleged, I'm mean, quoting now for people listening, data breach, and it will then send it over to the Mailinator address. Now, even if the website doesn't have an enumeration vector, because Mailinator is publicly facing mailboxes, you can always just check it directly in there. So that is how I verify. Now, <laughs> I got sent some data, some data which, um, without giving too much away, let's just say is broadly circulating. Broadly circulating, and I verified it using that approach. And I did this yesterday, checked out. 
So then I went to the contact us page of the website. First of all, I did a search. I mean, okay, does anyone, uh, does this service's name exist anywhere uh, alongside the words data breach? Uh, nope. So it hasn't been in the news or anything like that. Um, so then I went to their website and I went to the contact form and I filled out the contact form and it's like, hey, I'm Troy Hunt, you know, here's me, etc. Uh, your data is circulating and I actually linked them through to a resource, which would be very useful for verifying that it is circulating. And uh, I sent that off. Now, this would have been about 24 hours ago. I didn't hear anything back. So let's just see if they gave me a reply and it's actually in my junk, which does happen sometimes, before I name the company. Ooh, 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 it's not looking good. It's not looking good. All right, so I haven't been able to get a reply. Data is now circulating. There is a, a an eight-figure number of email addresses in it. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I tweet. Does anyone have a security contact at... And then I'm just going to put the name of the company. And of course, as soon as I mention this, everyone's going to go, it'll probably be a company of a name that you have not heard of, because I'd never heard of it. Uh, Clear Voice Surveys. Does anyone have a security contact at Clear Voice Surveys? Now, of course, as soon as I tweet this, people are like, oh, this isn't going to be good. And that's a pretty reasonable assumption, I think, in this case. But I have tried reaching out, and the extent to which their data is circulating is, I think, significant, is the right word to put just there. All right, let's tweet this out. Uh, and then then we'll come back and we'll have a look at what the, uh, the responses are. Does anyone have a security contact at Clear Voice Surveys? Now, unfortunately, I cannot find anywhere on Clear Voice Surveys a, uh, a Twitter handle. It's always fun to mention them. Oh, and I say fun's not the right word. It's a bit disingenuous. It's interesting to mention them because as soon as you mention them, of course, people start replying and they're like, oh, you really want to reply to this guy sort of thing. So let's have a look at this. Uh, does anyone have a security contact at Clear Voice Surveys tweet? Now we'll see what responses come back to that. But uh, yeah, I think that's, that's something that, that would uh, be quite nice for them to reply to because there is a lot of data there. So... Anyway, so this is the same problem over and over and over again. And when I look at my inbox now, and particularly the same incidents, when I have multiple people send me the same incidents, it's like, okay, well, this is really interesting now because it is obviously circulating sufficiently that many people and then a tiny subset of many people are reaching out and sending this through to me. So there's several of those, but the problem is, again, so many of them are like this situation just here where it is yet to be verified and I don't actually have the information. Uh, they don't actually have the confirmation. And I really don't want Have I Been Pwned to be the vector by which some organization learns that they've been pwned. Uh, and it, I, I just sort of have to get to this threshold of circulating data before I'm like, look, I did my best. I tried. Uh, it's really, 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 really public. And in a case like this, if you have a look at the nature of the service, it seems very unlikely that many people in there are going to be aware that they're in there. That's my assumption, reading how the service works. We'll see. Looking at some of the comments here, Dale says, there's a virtual camera plugin for OBS to have it act as a webcam, which should work with Google Meet. Doesn't handle audio though, unfortunately. Not found a plugin for that yet. All right, so that's, that's interesting, Dale, because I had seen that. I hadn't actually tried using it yet, and I was thinking I could use that. But um, 
my audio is not the problem. It has been that the browser couldn't see video when the audio was going through the Apollo DAC. Now I've been feeding my audio back through my old uh, Yamaha DAC, uh, my microphone audio, the, um, the audio out has been going through the Apollo. But I'll give that a go. That's, that's, a, that's a good one. Cheers, mate. Uh, someone else here says, I don't know if this already came up, but I really like OBS's virtual camera, okay, which is pretty much what we just covered here. Basically, allows you to plug any camera, mic, and screen share from OBS in any tool. Okay, maybe it does do mic. We'll see. Um, oh, no, then he says, you're obviously right. No sound over the virtual cam, which is fine, which is fine, because we should be able to just take another input as sound. Richard Campbell's here. G'day, Richard. Some people know Richard. Uh, you got my hopes up on mic support. Tweet. So Richard says, when Troy Hunt tweets out, anyone have a security contact is because they want to say how great they're doing. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. We'll see what comes back from that. Uh, Frederick is in uh, Tromsel in Norway. All right, nice. It's probably getting warm there. It's getting cold here. We had 11 degrees Celsius this morning. Um, now, we don't get a whole lot colder than that at all in this place. I think probably about six was the lowest I saw last year. So it is getting towards uh, winter just here. All right. Now, let me uh, let me move on because I do have other topics and things here as well. Now, Burton asked the other day, he said, how's the 3D printer going? What have I been 3D printing? Um Basically just anything, <laughs> to be honest, a lot of the 3D printer has become, let's say we had, uh, we had guests recently, we had, uh, we had Adam Kogan from SSW, Richard knows Adam very, very well, and his daughter's over, and before they came and stayed with us, we were like, let's just start printing something, because it looks really cool, and then when they come, they'll be able to watch it, and then we've got the 3D printer sort of set up between the kids' room in a, in a sort of bit of a thoroughfare area, and people walk past, and they just keep watching it, because it's so cool just seeing these things like grow. So things that I've printed recently, uh, our daughter really wanted uh, uh, wolves, and she wanted wolves because the other girls at school had put in an order for wolves. So we found a 3D wolf to print, and that was a bit of fun because we had to go through the whole process of actually creating some uh, some supports as well because it was literally a wolf standing on its paws. So if you were to imagine the way a 3D printer works, it creates slices that gradually raise out of the print bed. That's obviously, they're being printed on the bed, but that's what it looks like. So imagine the paws are fine, the legs are fine, then you get up to the body and you've got to join the body together and you've got to create like this, this bridge. So what the 3D printer can do is create supports where it prints these bits that will ultimately snap off, which is, say, between all the four paws, and it builds them up such that when it comes to do the belly, it's got something to sit on. Same with the tail, because the tail hangs down like that. You can't just start, like, printing into thin air, so it has to print a support under it, which then snaps off. So anyway, that's what we've been doing. We've been playing around a lot with that. Uh, we've also, um, she got an order for a chihuahua. <laughs> Someone wanted a chihuahua, so we had to find a chihuahua model. Uh, and then they also wanted to have a doghouse for the Chihuahua. That is all really high tech. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, we said, okay, that's that's cool. So we have to create the doghouse large enough. This is where it actually gets a bit more interesting. Create a doghouse large enough to fit the Chihuahua into. Uh, so for the so the, the the kids and sort of the educational point of this, uh, let's use some vernier calipers, and we'll use the calipers to measure the width and the height of the Chihuahua uh, down to a fraction of a millimetre such that we can print a doghouse that the Chihuahua will fit into. And this is where it actually gets educational. I've got a blog post in progress about uh, educational things I've done with the 3D printer for the kids because, as I've said before, it has been 
so far the single best educational purpose or purchase rather uh, I have made for the children and they've learned an awful lot doing this. So yeah, for the most part, Burton, random stuff, I'm yet to print anything I actually needed, if I'm completely honest. Um, I, I do want to print like some little have I been pwned tags or something like that. And, and maybe I'll send them out to some people as well. All right. So uh, looking at some of the other comments here. Uh, have you come across a new standard thread trying to replace Wi-Fi and Bluetooth for local IoT networks? A new standard thread try i'm not quite sure the nature of that question you might want to try and clarify that um dr blue says it snowed here yesterday for some strange reason uh where is where is here dr blue it's certainly not the gold coast i know that so that's uh it's not here um frederick says uh tromso which i'm sure i'm mispronouncing is a city in the northernmost universe with the northernmost university in the world there we go interesting no okay on to other things I got a question during the week, and this was actually a really good question, which I, I felt was not something I could sufficiently answer on Twitter. So I promised to pick it up here. Uh, oh, that page does not exist because I've put a letter on the end of it. Let's try this again. All right. So here's the tweet. Uh, this is from uh, NZ All. I've almost finished reading your IoT House article series and there's something I'm wondering. What happens if your home assistant server goes down for some reason? Does every integrated thing just stop working? Which is a really good question. And then he goes on and he says, main thing I'm wondering about are the, are the things other people expect to work except during full power outages, your light switches and your doorbell. If your HA server goes down, can you still toggle the lights and ring the doorbell? Partial yes, partial no. I'll explain why. But just as a recap, so HA, Home Assistant, is free open source home automation software. It is one of the top 10 most active open source projects in the world. Enormously good community support. Uh, there is an update to it, I would say, on average at least once a week. It seems like every single time I go and look, there's something new. Very, very well supported. Growing really well. Loads and loads of integrations for all of your IoT things. There are integrations, for example, for my uh, irrigation system. Uh, th this is useful because the irrigation system uh, is triggered based on things like, is it going to rain or not? Because we don't need to irrigate if it's going to rain. There's automations for all of the shellies, the IoT relays I have turning lights on and off. There's uh, uh, also automations, integrations, integrations for the lights themselves, such as the ones up here. When I just press that button uh, earlier on, just to show you how that works again, press the button, lights go off like this, press the button, they come back. When I press that, that is actually calling a webhook on the Home Assistant server, the server being a Raspberry Pi, which then triggers a scene. So enormously powerful stuff, but it, it does beg this question about how much shit dies if either the power goes out, in which case your lights and stuff aren't going to work anyway. So I, I don't think how much IoT stuff still works when there's no power is a valid question because stuff doesn't work anyway when there's no power. Um, that said, I have put a lot of work into making sure the right things are connected to my UPS. One of the uh, fun journeys I have had in recent weeks is the circuit that the server cabinet is on. So the server cabinet has everything from all of my Ubiquiti networking equipment through to uh, the Home Assistant server, Raspberry Pi, through to uh, my Pi hole, which does DNS resolution, uh, NAS drives, things like that. So that circuit 
It's just got a really, really weird collection of other things on the same circuit. And my Sparky, electrician, made this comment recently. He's like, you know, that cupboard where I've got everything, and when I say cupboard, if you're thinking my server's in a cupboard, it's a massive walk-in cupboard, which has got a, all the wine and stuff like that as well, in a proper wine fridge now. And that sits inside the garage, inside the bottom of the house. And then you walk out there, and over the other side where there's the kitchen, there are things in the kitchen which are on the same circuit. And then there's lights and other weird parts of the house on the same circuit. And the problem is, is that if something in a completely different area of the house doing a completely different purpose trips the circuit, then the server cabinet goes down, except for the UPS. Now, I have learned that once you get to about 15 years in a house, everything starts to break. (laughs) This is going to go on a completely different tangent now. One of the things that breaks is is the dishwasher. Now, the dishwasher seems like the motor possibly got water in it. Okay, it's 15 years, not too bad. Uh, but anyway, motor became faulty. The motor kept tripping the circuit. So what happened is the dishwasher would start and shortly after it would trip the circuit. So we'd turn the dishwasher on and then suddenly the UPS would fire up in the server room. Now, Really good failover uh, test in terms of what happens when we have to go to battery power because fortunately I have everything that I need plugged into that and I do get about half an hour uh, out of the UPS that I've got in there as well. So that has actually worked really well. Now the Home Assistant stuff is plugged into that UPS. So Home Assistant is still up and active. Now when it's one circuit gone, you know, not so bad. If it was power to the entire house, well, clearly you're not going to be able to turn on lights or anything like that anyway. You can't open the garage doors. There is a manual override, but obviously you're not going to be able to automate it. Uh, so it, it, I guess the partial answer there is that once you lose power to the house, that's always a very temporary state and a very rare state anyway. So we're less worried about that. The bigger question is what if HA goes down? What if I take an update and it restarts, but it only does the first part of the restart, the bit where it shuts down, it doesn't come back up. What still works? So let's start with the easy stuff. Does the doorbell still work? No. My doorbell is done by a ubiquity doorbell out the front, typical doorbell style. (laughs) This is where we put our doorbells in Australia. And then when you press the doorbell, it will fire up a little alert from the ubiquity app on my phone, also on my watch. That allows you to turn on the camera and see the stuff and all this sort of thing. Now that bit is fine. It also plays a chime on the Sonos in the, uh, I've got one in the kitchen and one in the living room and then they're all synced and it plays the same chime on each. So rather than having a chime box, which is what you would have traditionally held, had, whether that be the old sort of ding a bell thing, which would have actually literally had a wired connection through to the doorbell or you can get wireless ones these days, doesn't matter. When you push the button, it literally just plays a wav. <clears throat> now, that is not going to work if HA is down because HA is looking for the event which Ubiquity raises and that triggers an automation and then that plays the sound. So the Sonos wouldn't play, but my watch and my phone would still alert me to someone being at the door and the same stuff would go off on Charlotte's <coughs> because they're all on the same um, uh, signed into the same account. So the, I, I think one of the interesting things here is that as much as Home Assistant is the hub, there are still lots of little individual ecosystems of IoT automation with their own platforms. So the doorbell wouldn't ring downstairs. If there are other people here that didn't have the app, didn't have the watch, they wouldn't hear it, but we would still hear it on our devices. Okay, what about the lights? 
There are a bunch of uh, shellies in the walls. Now, the shellies, again, are these tiny little things about yay big. They say they're the size of like two Oreo biscuits, cookies, if you're American. <laughs> and, and they sit in behind the switch on your wall. Now, when you flick the switch, multiple different things can happen. By default, the shellies will work uh, as a, well, actually, there's, there's multiple different configurations, but when I've got traditional light bulbs, so dumb light bulbs, you just pass a circuit through, they light up, that's it. When I've got traditional light bulbs, the switches uh, or the shellies are configured in an edge switch mode, which means every time you flick the switch, it will change the state of the light. If the light is on, it will turn it off and vice versa. Now, home assistant or no home assistant, that is still going to work exactly the same. So all of my dumb lights with a smart shelly behind the switch will still work. No problems there. What will not work is the times that I have configured it as a detached switch. So a detached switch means no matter what you do with the switch, it will not change the state of the circuit, but it will raise an event. And Home Assistant can then listen to that event. So why do I use that? This room is a good example, and I haven't set this up yet because it's my room and normally people don't come in here and change switches. Uh, but what I need to do with this room is the lights up there, they're smart lights. They're RGB LEDs. They're smart lights. If someone turns off the circuit to those lights, then they no longer have power. If they have, don't have power, then they drop off the network and then they can't be controlled. Uh, the only way you can turn it back on is you've got to go to the switch and turn it back on. So what the detached switch does is says, hey, when we, when we toggle this switch from whatever state it is to the other state up, down, so on. When we do that, we'll raise an event. We won't kill the power, we'll raise an event. Home Assistant gets that event and it says, if the light is off, turn it on. If it's on, turn it off. This will break if Home Assistant is down. And, and I think maybe one of the things I need to do just for fun is like go and one day just shut Home Assistant down and go like, how broken is the house? But anyway, so that wouldn't work. But the other lights do. So in terms of NZ All's question here, that this is why it's a little bit of a nuanced response. And there's all sorts of other things. So things like the uh, garage door opener, the home automation component that wouldn't work, but the physical remote controls that we have for the system would work. The button on the on the uh, on the garage door itself would work. Uh, things like IoT sensors that have gotten around the place. These little motion sensors and light sensors, they won't work because they need to communicate to Home Assistant, which means they won't automatically turn on lights. But where I've got switches on dumb lights, well, they will turn on. I think the most interesting question here is what happens if I ever leave the house? <laughs> what happens if I sell the house? And I, I do have a little bit of a plan for that, which would take about a day of effort. And I won't go into it now, but that is sort of be the more likely thing that I'm going to have to deal with in terms of how do I solve this kind of whole home automation thing and make the house still work for normal people. All right, just look at some of the other comments here. Um, Lance is here. G'day, Lance. Certainly getting chilly in Australia. I was freezing in Melbourne last week and now in Sydney this morning is very cold. Yeah, we don't have that problem here. Not the same way anyway. Richard's done a lot of testing in his home, autom home automation house to understand behavior and HA is down and or internet and Wi-Fi. Uh, Stratus says your dishwasher is trying to take control of your house. So I, I mentioned um, everything breaks when it's 15 years old. Let me give me a... <laughs> I can't believe I'm having to do this. We had some leaks because it rained a lot here. Uh, and we've had leaks on and off. And we thought that one of the leaks... Because there's different leaks in different parts of the house. We thought one of them was coming from the roof. Anyway, builder comes in. By the time he's left... 
there is a quote that is six figures. And that's six figures in whatever currency <laughs> you deal with, even if it's like GBP or Euro, in order to fix the stuff. Because apparently leaks don't just come from the roof and the roof is in disrepair. Leaks also come from the bathroom where the tiles have a crack. And I've only just noticed there's like one squidgy tile. And one of the things I've learned is apparently a bathroom has a waterproof membrane around the whole thing. So imagine someone's building a house and they've got a bathroom and it's just a box, there's nothing in there. They waterproof the entire thing and it's almost like a big bladder that sits in it. And then they put all the tiles and things on it and it sits on top of this waterproof bladder. And if over the period of a decade and a half, there's enough decay and it cracks through the bladder, you need to demolish the entire bathroom, rip everything out, fix the waterproofing, put it all back in again. Long story short, you're several weeks down the line, uh, many tens of thousands of dollars later, bathroom still looks identical, that one tile isn't squidgy anymore, and it doesn't then leak downstairs into the stuff below. Anyway, I go, enough of my high horse on that. But, yeah, that's not fun. Uh, <laughs> just know as Burton saying, are you selling the house? No, uh, I have absolutely no intention to sell the house. It'd be too much work with the IoT stuff anyway. <laughs> Ben says, do you have a disaster recovery plan if the Raspberry Pi SD card gets corrupted? Yes. So my disaster recovery plan is I regularly take backups of uh, Home Assistant and I save them off the Pi. So I have backups. I, I literally uh, take them completely out of that environment. Uh, my, my DR is that if I have to completely recover, in theory, and I haven't tested this, and I appreciate that a lot of the nuance in DR is always the ability to restore, not just the ability to backup. But in theory... Uh, I go down, I get another Raspberry Pi. I, maybe I steal the OctoPi off the um, off the 3D printer, and I just uh, I just restore that into a new environment, and hopefully everything would be fine. I really hope so because it'd be an absolute pain in the ass otherwise. Uh, Cynthia, with you, g'day, Cynthia. Nice to see you here. Um, what else have we got here before we move on? Um, she says, clearly we just need a high availability home assistant. Or ha ha. Ah, nice, very good. Uh, Dale says using Zigbee to MQTT along with Home Assistant lets you configure Zigbee bindings so that even if a bulb is down, the switches can still control some device functions, which is, I guess, effectively what I've got with... Well, I mean, maybe there's a question with the Shelleys. I believe the Shelleys, if, because one of the, the, the questions is, you know, if you, if you sort of sell the house and how do people reconfigure the Shelleys and everything, I believe, someone might be able to quote me on or fix this quote, that if they dropped off the network for a sufficient period of time that they sort of factory reset. I'm not, not quite sure if that's true or not. Or I just go through and literally with the app factory reset them all. Hoping I don't have to deal with that. Uh, and, and Brian, to your question, I do have daily backups of the HA settings. Um, so again, this is a bit of a manual thing. Uh, someone can probably give me a tip here, but it would be great. And I'm just, we're going to go down the ubiquity rabbit hole again in a moment. But it would be great to be able to back up to cloud your configuration. Now, of course, that could have a whole bunch of stuff in it, which could have things like API keys and things. So I appreciate the, the risks that I've just raised. But this is one of the things that ubiquity was starting to do. Um, and I believe it's still doing, which is back up your configuration to cloud. And I think that this is important insofar as is your average home assistant user, even considering that they're going to be more technical people, are they going to take regular backups and are they going to put them somewhere that they can access, which isn't necessarily just on the HA instance and then either the card gets corrupted or someone literally steals your Raspberry Pi and you're screwed. But we certainly need something that's going to be a nice restore process. And when I think about nice restore processes, I always 
think about the iOS devices because every time I get a new iOS device or a family member gets an iOS device or I hand an iOS device down to a family member, I always know it's going to be easy. In my experience, certainly in recent years, it has been. It's like restore from iCloud, job done, which is what I'd really like. Okay. What else have we got in here before I move on to the next thing? Uh, Burton, can you set up a backup Pi to change over automatically if the main Pi stops working? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Uh, I just... Um, that sounds like work <laughs> for something that's been enormously reliable. And look, if I had to have a scenario where it just suddenly catastrophically failed and I've still got my backup files... And then I had to go and restore. At the moment, that is a better use of my time than trying to proactively do it because if it's down, it's not really that critical. Richard said there's a component for backing up to Google Drive. Okay, I need to look at that and I'm going to make a, uh, a, a note. And what I'd really like is something that happens pretty automatically. HA component to backup to Google Drive. So I'll look into that. Thanks, Richard. Uh, you can back up to GitHub private repository pretty easily too. That might be good too. Um, or GitHub. <laughs> so, and look, maybe it's just one of these things where if we could just back it up without keys or something like that, that would be a good middle ground, um, which would be quite nice as well. Since it has out of the weather in your part of the world, it was 2C here in Stockholm for most of the day. Yeah, it's not that here. Um, we're up to 18 at the moment. It's... Um, Interestingly, so when I said it was 11 degrees this morning, it was all Celsius, it was 24 degrees still in the water. So the radio was like, if you're cold, just go and get in the ocean. <laughs> It'll be fine. All right, let me move on here because I do have other things before I, I go to my next social engagement. Now, there was discussion around scraping of social media profiles just to get us back on the sort of privacy and infosec stuff. Now, this comes in the wake of uh, Facebook with their 533 million records that were scraped off there. Of course, I've spoken a lot about that because there are now 500 plus million phone numbers that are searchable and have I been pwned and some email addresses. Uh, and it also comes off the, off the back of a similar thing happening to Clubhouse, the social media platform, and LinkedIn. And there is a, a macro discussion here uh, about two important things. So one is that there is a lot of data on social media platforms which is accessible to a broad range of people. Uh, now, what I mean by this is that you can go to LinkedIn, you can look at my LinkedIn profile, Richard's LinkedIn profile, like whoever you want, you will find that data there. It is visible to the public by design. Like this is the way the platforms are designed to work because they're social. You're meant to be able to exchange information. And then there is the second part of the discussion which is this practice of scraping, so to take data that is either publicly exposed or exposed to, to you via an API specifically to you. Let's say you're a registered user of the platform, you log in, you can call an API, pass a phone number and get back someone's details. Uh, there are APIs designed to do this. And that the nuance here is what happens when someone takes that first point, all of that data which is accessible to other people, and the second point about the APIs and things that are designed to be exposed, and they hit it en masse. Now, let's just greatly simplify this and say, uh, for example, there is a social media platform. We won't, we won't say a particular one. This is just a hypothetical. And on that social media platform, you can enumerate usernames. And every time you hit a username, there's a certain piece of information exposed about that user. And that might be their name, their profile photo, uh, and their geographic location. So what country are they in? And then you can go through 
and you can mass enumerate and you can pull down that data and you can now create a rich data set of very, very large numbers of people. Should we be able to do this? Should this happen? And I, I think all of us sort of feel that no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be able to do this. But by the same token, all of us are like, well, we want to have Twitter profiles and Facebook profiles. I know there's a whole delete Facebook movement. I'm not part of that. Different story. Let's assume that people do actually want to have the platform and do want to make data available. So how do we make it so that they can make this data available to the people that they want it to be available to, but then not to the people who are going to go through and scrape it? And the answer to this is not to make scraping illegal. <laughs> How many responses have we seen? It's like, just make it illegal and people will stop doing it. Uh, the answer is definitely not just to say, well, our terms of services disallow this, therefore you can't do it because that just that's stupid. It's like, why don't we just make crime illegal and then it won't happen anymore? So that's not a solution. So we're left with this paradox, and I think it's really, really important to recognize that it is a paradox because we want to have both of these things. We want to have the sharing of information, but we also want to have control over where it goes. And there's a bit of a Venn diagram here where somewhere in the middle, it's like, well, these two things meet and people abuse the system. Now, the reason why I'm raising this here is that this is happening quite a bit. And in, fa in cases like the Facebook situation, all of these news headlines about a data breach are just frankly wrong. It's not a data breach. It is information that was scraped from Facebook and used in a way which was counter to how people expected it to be used. My data wasn't in that Facebook incident because my phone number is not on Facebook. Charlotte's data was. Many of my other friends did have their data there. People listening to this had their data there because they had phone numbers in Facebook. And there's a question about whether... Facebook ever should have allowed data to be discoverable by that phone number and whether you agreed to it in the terms and conditions which you didn't read because you're a normal person. Uh, and, and that, I think, is still not clear. But this whole bit about scraping data and that it shouldn't be possible, but on the same, on the, by the other hand, you still want to have the platform, it just, it, it just doesn't fly. Now, here's what I'm talking about. This. So someone, uh, someone tweeted here, uh, Facebook sent an internal email to their staff about their position on this. Now, first of all, this was sort of framed, not necessarily by the person who put the tweet out, but by the media as though, oh, like this internal discussion somehow got leaked. Facebook and any large organization does not send a company-wide message without the expectation that it will leak outside the company. <laughs> so so let, let's get over the fact that this is not some like sensational leak that's Facebook never expected to be public. You can't have a company, particularly one with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably tens of thousands of people, and then not expect at least one person in there to leak it to the press. So here's what's been picked up on here. Someone's saying, wow, internal Facebook memo regarding the recent Facebook, uh, the recent breach, it's not a breach, leaked. Now, there's several points that have been picked up on here. If we stop talking about it, FB will not provide more info. Actually, rather than read their commentary, I'm going to read the bits that they've highlighted in the email. All right. In fact, I'll read the whole thing and then I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize the highlighted bits. Long-term strategy. Again, this is Facebook's email to their employees. Assuming press volume continues to decline, we're not planning additional statements on this issue. Now, this is very normal for an organization to say, look, there is, there is a buzz about an incident. It'll die down. This is a very, very normal strategy to expect that it will die down over time. Do we actually have to make more comments about it or does that just send the, the press back up into a, a, an uptick? 
Longer term, though, we expect more scraping incidents and think it's important to both frame this as a broad industry issue and normalise the fact that this activity happens regularly. Now, frame has been highlighted. The fact that this activity happens regularly has been highlighted. And the, the position that whoever highlighted is trying to make, I'm not sure if it's the person who made this tweet or someone else, is that Facebook is trying to pass this off as not serious, not their problem, it's an industry problem, don't get upset just with us. The thing is, they're right, though. <laughs> this is you, know, you might not like Facebook, but you can't argue that they're right on this. They are trying to frame the problem. They're, they're trying to put it in context here. This activity does happen regularly. And it has happened at a time where it's not just Facebook, it's Clubhouse and it's LinkedIn as well. And it's happened many, many times before and it will happen many, many times in the future as well. This is a broad industry problem. And rather than people sort of trying to pick on Facebook, it's not like I'm here trying to be like a Facebook apologist. But I just, regardless of whether they're a big company, little company, whatever they do, I just hate bullshit arguments, which is which is what the person making uh, highlighting these points is trying to do. So this does happen very regularly. It is a hard industry problem for the reasons I just mentioned. It goes on. To do this, the team is proposing a follow-up post in the next several weeks that talks more broadly about our anti-scraping work and provides more transparency around the amount of work we're doing in this area, <clears throat> which is reasonable. Facebook should be talking about how they're addressing this problem. They do have a role to play, and let's face it, they have screwed some stuff up in the past. I mean, royally screwed it up in the past, and they're conscious of that image. They do obviously want to be more, or doing more rather, uh, to stop the scraping. Um, they have to. It doesn't benefit them at all. Facebook gets nothing by other people coming in and scraping their data and then having this other set. There is nothing at all that works in their favor by other people scraping their data. They don't want that to happen, but they're also trying to provide the service that all the people want in order to see their friends' birthdays and whatever else it may be. While this may reflect a significant volume of scraping activity, we hope this will help normalize the fact that this activity is ongoing and avoid criticism that we aren't being transparent about particular incidents. Like half of this is highlighted. Avoid criticism we aren't being transparent about particular incidents. It's, I'm just having trouble finding anything that's actually wrong with this statement. Because the person here is quoted has said, if we stop talking about it, FB will not provide more info. Well, that's not what this says. It says, look, we do plan on a follow-up. FB wants to frame the normalizing of ongoing scraping. Again, this is, this is the context. The context is when we have a social media platform, Facebook or any other ones, uh, this is something that happens regularly. FB wants to avoid criticism on them not being transparent. Isn't that a good thing? To avoid criticism on not being transparent by being transparent? It just, it just bugs the hell out of me. What do the comments say <laughs> while I calm down? Um, Stratus says, I needed Facebook because it keeps me in contact with family in South Australia when I'm in New South Wales. Now, see, I think this is a very, very reasonable comment. We, we need to look at where the value is in these platforms and we need to look at where the risks are and then we all need to make our own personal decisions on what we, what we want to what we want to entrust these platforms with. I've gotten to the point now where everything that I post to Facebook, I flag as public. Uh, and I only post things to Facebook that I want to be public. And it's uh, that's actually led to some other funny things I'll talk about another time. In fact, I've got a great talk going 
in draft, which is going to be, I think, one of the first ones I do once I can do a significant keynote in public, because it's just going to be really good fun about the things that people have taken from me that I've published publicly, thinking that they're meant to be secret. But um, I treat it as a public resource. And on that basis, I'm never going to have a case where something that I have put on Facebook is then used in ways that I wouldn't be happy with being public. I like the fact that I can see what my friends and my family and other parts of the world are doing. I also like the fact there's a bunch of pages I follow that talk about everything from 3D printing to cars, and I can see a nice feed of this, and I just have to try and control the amount I use it, and I have a pretty good balance for me personally, and that's great. If you don't like it, don't use it. But the information that you put in there, and particularly information you flag as public, and I do appreciate that it is a absolute massive clutch of privacy and security settings and things these days but you're still putting the information in there and making it available publicly and this is again the, the problem i have where people are like look i put all this information there i made it public and now i'm upset that the public got it so you know like pick what you want to do all right so what else is in here um i'm going to go on there's one other piece here that i want to talk about which makes me enormously happy and that is coin hive now just as a refresher, CoinHive was the cryptocurrency mining JavaScript that you could put on your own website or people who hacked your website could put on your website. And then they would get a little bit of Monero coin for every browser that it ran in. And it was shady as, quite frankly. And when I wrote about it uh, about a month ago now, almost a month ago, I made the comment that uh, some Dutch researchers had found that I think it was somewhere in the order of about 70% of instances of CoinHive were put there maliciously, either by compromising the website itself or somewhere in the dependency chain. So, you know, there's a, a third-party library or a JavaScript file or something, and then they had injected CoinHive into that. Now, CoinHive shut down a couple of years ago. I got the CoinHive domain. Someone literally gave it to me, uh, and I then set CoinHive up to, uh, to make sure that any request to the CoinHive JavaScript return my own JavaScript and it puts a message on that website which says, this website attempted to run a crypto miner in your browser. Click here for more information. Links through to my blog on CoinHive with some guidance on how to remove it. Now, if you put it there yourself, stop doing that shit, get it off. If someone else put it there, you have bigger problems. You need to figure out what that problem is. Now, two interesting things have come from this. Now, number one is I really wanted to see a decline in the requests sent to the CoinHive domain. Now, this is a very paradoxical thing because I've never stood up a website before. I went, gee, I hope this becomes unpopular really quickly. But I really wanted to see it go down. And I tweeted some data just yesterday. So I was seeing, when I first took over that CoinHive domain, looks like about 117,000 unique visitors a day at peak. Imagine that, you're getting a website for free and there's 117,000 people a day that come to it. So, uh, so I was seeing 117,000. That is now down to almost 60,000 a day in less than a month. So the graph that I tweeted shows a steady decline, which to me says the most likely explanation for that is the places where CoinHive had been embedded are now removing CoinHive. Good job. It wasn't working, of course, for the last two years. It wasn't mining any cryptocurrency, but it was still reflective of predominantly compromised websites or websites using compromised third-party dependencies. So that's really, really good to see that number going down. Now, here's the other fun thing, and this is what prompted me to talk about this today. Someone, uh, someone tweeted me two days ago. They said, was curious. So I searched 
this website attempted to run a crypto miner in your browser and Google gave me 137,000 results. So I tweeted this and, and look, just for kicks, I'm actually going to take this URL and I'm going to drop it into the comment thread here on the live stream. Oh, wow, that is actually more than 200 characters long. So I can't I can't send that in the comment. But if I chop out, I haven't noticed that Google searches have that great big long key in it. What happens if we take the key out? Of that query string parameter does it still work and then i'll tweet this there you go. does still work all right not tweet it i'll put it in the comments of the youtube video now if you go and run that search now uh when i ran it uh this is kind of interesting why did that only give me 46 results because then if i run it in private i get 188,000 results which is kind of odd Anyway, regardless of whether you run it in private or not, you get all of these results where if I just pop a few random ones open, it's quite funny. Well, it's funny for me. It's probably less funny for the people running the websites. It's quite funny that a lot of them then put my message over the top of them. So these are loading up. My JavaScript loads right at the end of it once everything else on the page has loaded. Here we go. Uh, compare life insurance quotes to IE. This website attempted to run a crypto miner in your browser. Uh, what's this one? SOCA.CV. What do these guys do? Something in in CV. Where's Which TLD is CV? Anyway, that one attempted to run a crypto miner as well. Uh, that one was okay and that one was okay. But anyway, you get all these results because inevitably what Google uh, is doing, even though that content of mine doesn't sit in the HTML source. Google is obviously calling all the dependencies, rendering the JavaScript into whatever little engine they use to do their SEO and look at the page and finding that my message is appearing on all these websites. So Stratus says, uh, I got page two of about 188,000 results. Um, probably no, uh, and then we're off onto other topics here. Oh, CV is uh, Cape Verde. So uh, thank you, uh, Richard and Cynthia. That's something else I've learned there. So obviously, um, Obviously, it is sitting there on a very large number of websites, but it is also declining. And, and again, like the objective here is, is not to screw with people's sites. There were some suggestions that people made when I said, what should I do with this JavaScript, which some of the suggestions would have been very unpleasant. And I'm sure you can use your imagination uh, on that. So uh, I think that's heading in the right direction, and I'm pretty happy with that. I'm just going to have a look at the comments. So if anyone else has any more questions or things that they want to ask or chat about this week before I I head off, I'm still massively behind because of going mountain biking last week. Uh, the inbox was in triple digits, which is which is not really where I like it to be. It's back in triple digits after last night as well, which wasn't great. But yeah, Brian says, I wonder how many of these websites have other security issues and malware. And this is really kind of the point that, that I was wanted to make with, with the blog post, which is that there are uh, obviously a whole bunch of sites that have vulnerabilities, which is how CoinHive got there in the first place. Or they have dependencies, which have vulnerabilities, and they need to fix those. And in the CoinHive blog post, I was talking a lot about content security policies. And, and this, again, is, is like the value proposition. Wouldn't it be great if we had the technology to say that my website can only get scripts from certain other websites, which I predefine. And if it starts behaving in an odd way, then it will not load those dependencies. So we do have the technology to avoid a coin hive like situation in the future as well. 
Andrew says, I was wondering why none of these sites was running the JS. Then I realized my Pi Hole blocked CoinHive. Yes, so do unblock CoinHive in your Pi Hole. Uh, I actually wanted the same thing, Andrew, when I was first setting this up. I was like, why doesn't my script work? <laughs> why isn't this thing doing what I expected it to? And I, uh, I forgot that Pi Hole does block CoinHive. Uh, incidentally, I had, and I mentioned this, I think, last week or the week before, but I had all sorts of AV products uh, start to block TroyHunt.com because of all the CoinHive mentions I made on that blog post. So I had to speak to some AV vendors and, and get that sorted out as well. Since there's the second result I saw on that Google query was a Swedish one that seemed like a lend out to compute research sites, uh, a lend out, lend out your compute to research sites. Okay, curious, uh, that's interesting. Stratus, I'm a story writer and always Google names I create to see how many hits I get. Uh, if zero, then I'm happy. Yep, okay, fair enough. All right, folks, I'm going to wrap it up there. Thanks for, for joining in this week. No more blog posts, but I think uh, next week will probably be a lot of, of new breaches. Um, actually, before I drop, let's just see if I've got any, any requests or any replies to my request for a security contact at that website. Uh, the replies say... <laughs> Jim DeVries, when you show up in a random company's mention, they should be concerned. People don't normally like to hear from me. Richard says, because you want to tell them an awesome job they're doing, which is a comment you put in there. Uh, someone else here, Lee Ball, has uh, memed someone disappearing very, very quickly. Uh, and the last comment here, Benny Blanco, I never want to be on the receiving end of this tweet. Very often when I do workshops, people go, oh, yeah, we got you to do the workshop because we don't want, you, we don't want to be on your website and we don't want you to tweet about us. And it feels very protection racket when they put it that way. Brian says, have you tried using a drone to follow you on your mountain bikes? I've used my Mavic Pro for it and the auto tracking works fairly well. I've pretty much um, just stuck with the GoPro and the GoPro does an epic job. I did uh, a tweet, a link to some video I did there. I, I don't know that I need more toys in my life right now and more things to break and maintain uh, and more, more things to patch as well. All right, folks, thanks very much for watching. I'm going to drop and I will see you uh, next week. I'm not sure what time of day I'll do it. I'll work uh, next week. I'm going to do it in the morning next week. Uh, and that will get me back to the normal rotation. So same time next week, same place. Thanks, folks.